Chris here. I'm jumping in before the episode starts to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. This little show has had thousands of listeners from all over the world, and I'm incredibly humbled that you would take the time to learn more about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. If you're interested in supporting the show, you have two options. First, and my recommended route, is to look into the organizations that the guests recommend. These groups are doing great work all over the world, and if you have the ability, donating your time or money will do a lot of good. Second, if you're interested in directly supporting the show, I don't have any ads, don't have a Patreon, I don't make any money from this, and nor do I want to. But I do have a memoir about my time in the Marine Corps. It's called Chasing Alexander, A Marine's Journey Across Iraq and Afghanistan. Kirkus Review says, Martin's memoir is as thoughtful as it is lucid, and is written in a deeply personal, confessional style, probing and self-effacing. If that sounds interesting to you, you can order a copy at any online retailer. And, again, my deepest thanks for listening to the show. I hope these stories have helped you understand the wars better. Hey everyone, it's Chris, the host of the Long War Interviews. And before we jump into today's interview, I want to talk a little bit about professional rivalries, for lack of a better term. Now, if you work with other people, as I'm sure most of you do, there is usually a hierarchy of some kind. In some jobs, let's take the tech industry as an example. It's pretty laid back. It's a less formal organizational hierarchy. You can wear a hoodie to work and be chummy with your boss that kind of thing. On the other side of the spectrum is law enforcement. Your work clothes are described in detail in a manual, and God save you if you think you can be casual with your superiors. But both of those examples are formalized cultures and hierarchies, and a lot of places have some more unwritten rules and orders. Let's take the U.S. Army, for example. There are screening and assessment programs for different units and jobs that move in kind of a pyramid shape. This is a, a gross exaggeration, by the way, and kind of a stereotype. But follow along and hopefully this metaphor will make sense. Now, in the Army, uh, in the infantry world specifically, you have regular grunt units as the base of the pyramid. Things like the 1st Infantry Division. Then you have a little more sophisticated units up around, like the 82nd Airborne that does parachute operations. And above that, you have the Ranger Regiment, your tough, elite troops that have gone through advanced training. But the best Rangers get tested to see if they have what it takes to be a Green Beret. And the best of the best Green Berets go to Delta Force. So some kind of a pyramid like that. So you could be an E6 uh, Staff Sergeant, at any level of that pyramid, and you'll wear the same rank, get paid the same, more or less, and be accorded the same benefits. But there are these unwritten rules and customs that give you different levels of respect, depending on where in that pyramid you are and where the people you're working with are. Now, you might be a fancy ranger working with a regular grunt unit, and have a bunch of privates looking up to you just by the sheer virtue of having been in a ranger battalion. But it also cuts the other way. Maybe you're in the 82nd, and you get an officer that worked in a special forces team as a Green Beret, and you think to yourself, you know, this guy isn't so hot. I've had better officers before. Anyways, my point with all of this is to remind you that there are these unwritten hierarchies and that people react to them. For better or worse, it's a thing that everyone does. I want you to keep that in mind for today's episode. Okay, enough with this long-winded introduction. Today's guest is Robert Waples. He's an army vet and a terrific storyteller. I think you'll really enjoy his story about attending a feast in Afghanistan. Uh, and also, this interview was originally recorded back in March of 2021. Now, Robert has two great veterans organizations to shout out. The first is Horses for Heroes, 
They provide free training and programs to post 9-11 veterans out in New Mexico, where they work with horses to develop personal and spiritual growth. If you've ever spent any time on a ranch, you know how transformative working with horses can be. The second organization is Hooten Young, which is founded by former Delta Force Master Sergeant Norm Hooten. Uh, he was played by Eric Bana in the movie Black Hawk Down, if you've ever seen that. And Hooten Young makes really high quality whiskey and cigars, and they donate 10% of the proceeds to veterans charities. There are links to both of these organizations in the show notes, so give them a look. Okay, let's start the show. The United States has been at war for the last 20 years. My name is Chris, and I sit down to talk with veterans about their time fighting overseas. These are the long war interviews. My name is uh, Robert Waples. I'm a retired staff sergeant from the United States Army. I first joined the military after my first semester at Villanova University in 1994. I didn't like college. College wasn't for me. And so I, uh, I kind of defected out of there and, and kind of rolled on into, you know, my enlistment duties as a 19 Delta, which is a scout. I went from 94 all the way up until I turned 20 years old, did three years on active duty, came home and then joined the police academy. And I was a full-fledged police officer by the time I was 22 years old. So I went, I kind of missed the uniform. So I, I, I went ahead and uh, went into the National Guard as an 11 Bravo uh, infantry. And that's when a buddy of mine caught my eye. A buddy of mine was a police officer as well in Ocean City, Maryland. But he was in a special forces unit. And so, you know, located in Maryland. So, you know, we got to talking and he took me with him to drill one weekend. I put in an interstate transfer, got accepted, and went into the 20th Special Forces Group. It's sort of like right around 2001 when all hell broke loose and the towers fell. So, you know, most of my combat time is, is, is all National Guard time, and as well as being a police officer in the city of Philadelphia. So I got combat, you know, both on the streets in Philly and, and, and of course, in the military. But, yeah, so that's where my story begins, man. Just out of curiosity, you know, Villanova is kind of like a, a fancy rich kid school. How did it feel going from that environment, you know, to, to being an enlisted man? You know, Villanova, Villanova was much like what I was used to. I graduated from Wissahick in high school, which is a uh, rather really, really good public public high school. I think in the last five years, they've come in pretty high rank. They've been ranked five in the nation. So that's where I graduated from, me and my brothers. And, you know, we were fortunate. My father was a, a Philly cop and uh, he moved us out to the suburbs when we were kids and and I got, I, I hated school. I was more, I wasn't even really an athlete at that much. I was just kind of trying to find my way. And, but I ended up getting, you know, good enough grades to get into Villanova, but it just wasn't for me. Yeah, I, so. I hear that, man. I, I did the same thing, went to school for two years and dropped out and enlisted. I think kind of a common path for a lot of kids. Yeah. So it's not for everybody. Yeah. So talk to us. Uh, September 11th happens, the towers fall down, and you're in, you know, what kind of happens with your unit? What's, what's kind of going through immediately after that? Well, I was, I was a police officer in the streets, Philly, when, uh, you know, that, I believe it was a Tuesday morning. I had just gotten off. I worked last out and, and, and cop talk and cop speak last out is always third shift. So, you know, I had just gotten off work at seven o'clock that morning. I got in the house, my kids are in school or my daughter was in school. My wife at the time was at work. And so I had that whole house to myself. I turned the air conditioner on high and I grabbed the blanket. I grabbed my service pistol and I grabbed the pillow and the cordless phone and walked into the, the closet. And I would just, it was nice and dark in there. And I just curl up on the floor and just go to and I'd get the best sleep of my life. So the phone rang on the morning of September 11th, and it was my mother, and she sounded frantic. I'm like, what is the matter with you? Like, are you all right? She said, oh, you know, a plane just slammed into a building in New York. And then she's like, turn on the television. So I'm like, mom, I'm, I'm trying to go to sleep. I've just had a rough night, you know? So I go out, I'm in the bedroom, I turn the television on, and I watch the second plane slam into the second tower. I just got stone quiet, just stone quiet, because 
in the unit, we have like standing orders, like if any type of, you know, natural disaster or man-made disaster or declaration of war or anything like that, you just go to your closet, everything that's green, you just throw it in a duffel bag and you should have a folder where you have credit card numbers, birth certificates, bank account numbers, routing numbers, all that already pre-planned. You just reach in the safe. And that's exactly what I did. I took the folder, set it right square in the middle of the dining room table, loaded the shotgun for put that by the door, got everything together, got my uniform, ran out, jumped in the car, all communications had went down. And on 95 uh, South from Philadelphia to Baltimore, where my unit was located, I was the only car on the highway. And it was a, it was a pretty creepy feeling. And it's really funny because at that time, I wasn't even, uh, and, I, and I never did get fully tapped out as a Green Beret. I was slotted to go to, I think, let's see, I was September 11th. I was slotted to go to selection that November. So I had been going to PLDC, Airborne School. We had been training on pre-SFAS, you know, just trying to get ourselves in shape. A lot of the team guys were training us. And so we were getting ramped up to go. And, you know, I was just hauling, you know, trying to get to the unit as quickly as possible. That's how my, that's how September 11th started for me. I, I don't know if you want to talk or if you can talk about SFAS or the Q course, I guess if you didn't go through, did, is that something that you always wanted to do? Was it just kind of never got the opportunity? Well, what's really funny is that, you know, going backwards a little bit in 1994, right before I went to college, me and my cousin had decided that we wanted to be SEALs. Now I know this was, you know, 1994, you know, the whole Frogman thing was in and GI Joe, I grew up you know, I wanted to be, I knew that I wanted to do something really spectacular with my life between the ages of 18 and 21, because I couldn't become a police officer. And that's all I ever wanted to be. I couldn't become a, a police officer in Pennsylvania until I turned 21. So I figured I know what I'll do. You know, me and my cousin will go and we both had the same idea. We'll become SEALs together on the buddy program, which is something that they had back then. And, you know, we'll, we'll go in together. It just so happens that my cousin graduated in 92 and I graduated in 93. So he was supposed to just kind of wait around for me a little bit until after I graduated and then we would go in together. Well, my cousin disappeared on me. He just, you know, I graduated. I went to a family reunion. I went to my aunt. I'm like, hey, where's, you know, so-and-so at? And she's like, oh, yeah, he, 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 he's, he's been gone for a while now. I was like, yeah, I know that where. And then she was like, I think he's, I think he's somewhere in California. And I'm like, really? You know, like you don't know, you don't know where he, oh, well, well, he said something about he was going to join the military, but I haven't seen him. So I'm just sitting there and I'm just like, okay, well, no one's seen or heard from him in a while. Come to find out this fool went and joined the Navy, went to uh, Great Lakes, graduated from basic training, passed the SEAL qual. And then got into buds and he was at the time that i asked he was on his way to or in like the first couple of weeks of buds and he did it without me i was just furious i was absolutely furious so i stomped you know got mad went to college and after i heard that he had graduated and he was coming to the next family reunion i didn't have anything to show him. you know i got a, i got a semester in villanova under my belt i'm not a seal so i said i'm gonna fix him I went down to the first recruiter I saw, which was an army recruiter. And I was like, dude, give me the heaviest thing you got. He was like, well, you know, we got scout, the scouts a pipeline into Ranger, which is a, a pipeline in SF. And he was like, if you want to do it, do it. And I said, all right, sign me up. So needless to say, he's, <laughs> he's still in the teams. I think he's about to retire, but he's still in the teams. And I, uh, I never became a seal. Fair enough. Fair enough. So get back to kind of you know post September 11th here so you you know crazy morning you're heading off to your unit and I know the invasion of Afghanistan happened a couple weeks later it's October 7th you know what what was happening in the that kind of first month after the towers fell down well when I first pulled up to my unit uh, where we're where we're located it's it's kind of in a, a remote area you know it's we have our own ranges we have our own rappel towers our own obstacle course we have pretty much you know our own tracks that we run which are anywhere from three to ten miles i mean we really do it's a lifestyle without a doubt and some of the guys in the teams i would put them up against professional athletes so when i first pulled up to the unit i noticed that there was some movement wood line and there were guys walking back and forth holding them fours at the bottom of the gate 
And so when I pulled up, they're like, hey, Rob, you know, what's up? And I was like, what do you mean, what's up? And they were like, yeah, we're just kind of checking. You know, they're looking all through the car. I'm like, you know, I'm not compromised. Like, what's going on? And I, all of a sudden, I saw, like, that movement again. Here it was, dude, in a ghillie suit in a woodline. And I'm like, really? It's that serious? I mean, we had our own, you know, helicopter landing pads, the whole nine yards. They were like, report to the top of the hill. Go see the sergeant major and uh, get your issue. And I'm like, dude, like, what's going on? Just get to the top of the hill and get your stuff. When I walked in there, every everybody was just kind of dazed. You know, we were kind of walking around. We were glued to the television. You know, the guys were just kind of, they weren't amped up. We weren't really sure what was going on yet. I don't think it had really come out for about a week that we had literally been attacked. You know, we, you know, at first it seemed like a mistake. And then we're hearing rumblings about, you know, Pennsylvania, you know, what happened in Pennsylvania and then the, the Pentagon. So we're, we're just starting to get that footing underneath of us that, all right, fellas, this is the real deal. This is the, you know, this is the flare just went up. Now everybody's walking around. We're all fully armed. Even when we're just walking around, you know, going to lift weights, going out for a jog, you know, just trying to get some basic skills under our belt and refresher courses and stuff. We're being trained up by the guys. Everybody's just kind of on edge, you know? And so it, it took a little while. It took a little while for orders to come down because we're a national guard SF unit as opposed to active duty, you know, third, fifth, 10th, seventh group, you know, those guys, especially, you know, fifth group, triple nickels probably wheels up by then. You know, there, it, it took a little while. We had to get qualified. We had to go and get, you know, training and stuff like that just because we were national guard. But, but it was the op tempo had increased dramatically. And uh, this, we all knew this was a real deal. Interesting. Would you, would you mind just giving like a little background on what SF does in the army, kind of what their role is, stuff like that, just for like a lay listener who might not be familiar with what the Green Berets do? Sure. You know, there are missions out there that exist that, that only specialized soldiers should key in on. You know, when you're an infantry soldier, your job is to lock horns with the enemy and take the fight to the enemy. Uh, if you're a scout, your job is to gather intelligence and report that information to the rear. You know, but there are different levels to this direct action or unconventional warfare type of aspect. And so what Green Berets really are, are there special soldiers that are force multipliers. They could, you know, jump in and, you know, train up a guerrilla army and attempt to lead a coup to overthrow a government they could gather special you know special information into hard to reach or behind enemy lines you know hard to reach areas they're combat divers they're not navy seals but they're very very close to it we have halo teams we have scuba teams these soldiers are pretty much the jack of all trades direct action and hostage rescue you know foreign internal defense these are just some of the missions that one green beret team could accomplish or can be assigned to a task with and so these guys are you know people say that you know they're the best of the best but in order to get there you really have to exhibit some intestinal fortitude and you know rangers are good at it's you know shock and awe they could seize an airport they could do all sorts of really really funky things green berets are just an entity in and of themselves and they're trained that way there's a lot of money that goes into the training of just one soldier yeah so that's a great little explainer. I appreciate that. I know for the listeners out here, in the in the early days of the invasion of Afghanistan, Green Berets and the CIA paramilitary guys were instrumental in raising forces in the in the north of the country, the Northern Alliance, as well as raising Pashtu forces. Karzai came out of that as well, and were instrumental in helping kind of. Uh, I, I, we call them local nationals. I don't know if you guys had a different term for it, but like indigenous people to help be that force multiplier, you know, in conjunction with American airstrikes and, and other ground troops like that. Covered the, the background of the Green Berets here, you know, your your lead up to the war is starting to kick off. Do you want to talk about your first deployment in so much, if, you know, if anything is classified, you know, don't worry about it, just kind of like broad strokes or anything like that. Well, I mean, to be completely and totally honest with you, the, the juiciest parts are not always the, the, the most fun parts to talk about. Or should I, 
Should, you know, or, or vice versa, for example, like, you know, I got a chance to watch the guys that were being deployed go into ISOFAC, which is isolation. Got a chance to do a lot of meaning, meaningful tasks around the area. Since, since I never had an, an, actual, an actual opportunity to go to selection, to go to the Q course, we more or less accompanied the teams into theater. And so, you know, it's really funky because at the end, you know, I ended up on a team, but which is pretty much almost never heard of. But, you know, just to watch these guys go through everything that we have been trained for the last several years, you know, landing in country. Now, we wound up leaving. We flew out of the United States and wound up landing in K2, which is Karshi Kanabat, which is in Uzbekistan, which is the northern border of, of Afghanistan. If you go back and take a look, Operation Mountain Viper, I believe, had just concluded. And so uh, Task Force 120, which was a lot of a lot of CAD guys and stuff like that, like the forces that you were referring to, was, was just starting to ramp up and gain their foothold and figure out what the mission set was and what they wanted to do and how they wanted to go about doing it. And so a lot of those, even though we didn't have a SOFA agreement, which is a status of forces agreement with the host country, there was not supposed to be any combat forces at K2. I believe that was sort of like the agreement between Uzbekistan and the United States. Little did they know that there was an entire SF, basically a battalion that just rotated teams in and out of country straight through K2 on a continuous basis from 2002 all the way up until when I got there in 2003. But watching these guys go on ISOFAC, you know, sitting in on the mission briefings, uh, sitting into the ops end, being read in on classified stuff, even though we may or may not accompany them, not being fully qualified, eventually down the road, all that intel and all that, you know, kind of right seat riding with these guys eventually paid off. We went to the Pashtun uh, Valley. There's a lot of stories. There's so much to talk about. There was so much to between Gardez and Herat, Tora Bora, you know, fighting in the mountains and stuff like that. It was just, it was, it was really awesome to sit and watch these guys get their, you know, they just settled right in like it was, like it was their second skin. They never even, you never, they never balked for a second. And it was just really awesome. It was everything that I thought it would be. And I didn't have to go through the two year training that they went through in order to get it. I think it was, just, it was pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. I still hold a lot of those guys that I work with, and I'm still in very, very close contact with a lot of them, but I hold them in the highest regard. Yeah, for sure. I, I totally believe that. One thing I'm kind of curious about, you know, there's, I think people forget that the Taliban was a government, right? The, the Taliban was the government in control of Afghanistan that allowed Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda to operate, and we came in and we pushed out the government and, you know, installed varying levels of elected officials. And now the convention, what people assume is the Taliban is really a government in exile that also runs drugs and guns to fund operations and is more of a, is almost more of like an IRA insurgency is kind of the way that I think of it because they do have a lot of popular support among the people as opposed to insurgents in Iraq that didn't always have that popular support. In, in those early days, were these teams, were they fighting, you know, regular Taliban, like official government Taliban troops? Was it like the Afghanistan army? What was kind of the, the, the enemy at that time, if you will? Well, the time, at the, the enemy at the time really was anybody that stood against the blue forces, you know, for the most, for the most part, anybody that stood against us. Our number one goal was to get in and to eradicate these guys. And, and that's exactly what the teams did. The teams inserted, they, you know, rode on horseback, as you well know, and have seen the movies and stuff like that. That was well before we got there. But these guys were, you know, like I said, they were masters of all sorts of crafts and extremely unconventional. But at the same time, we have got to see green on green fighting outside the gate at Bagram. You know, there was a lot of disease that was rampant running through the compounds. People were getting sick. It was just, it was a lot to get used to, but pretty much anybody that, because they have their own local customs, their own local tribes, their own, way, their own way of doing things there. And so for the SF units that were there, and we also partnered up with Lissoft, Jurisoft, Norsoft, which is Lithuanian, Germany, and Norway, you know, these, they, we all worked together, but, you know, you have to kind of take into consideration that we had one goal. And one goal was to, you know, basically eradicate anybody that 
facilitated these training camps that spun these guys up to call September 11th. And if that meant that we had to wipe out, you know, the old regime, then so be it. It wasn't, you know, I wouldn't say it's not a problem, but that is exactly what, you know, these guys are trained for. And that's exactly what we did, at least to the best of our ability. You know, our hands were kind of tied a little bit, but. Yeah, I get that. You, you brought up an interesting point. You guys are operating in a lot of different areas, but also it is a very tribal country. You know, there's 12 plus different ethnicities, you know, way more languages. I've heard 50, 60 different languages spoken in Afghanistan. How did you guys kind of overcome those challenges, you know, dealing with what are essentially like a patchwork of separate countries and cultures and things like that? We, we brought in a lot of, uh, you know, aside, well, if you, if you know how the special forces is, how they're designated, how they're set up, each area, each group is more or less responsible for a region of the world. When you go through the Q course, there is a certain section in there, it's language section. And so you will, you know, like for the National Guard units, 20th group, we are Spanish speakers because we augment or we, we supplement seventh group, which is responsible for Latin and South America. So, you know, pretty much every Green Beret that comes in 20th group is fluent in Spanish. And so, so on and so forth. You have Farsi, Urdu, Pashtun, Mandarin, you know, Arabic. And so different groups are, they speak different languages, depend Tagalog, depending on where they are. And so one of the things that we wound up doing was we wound up bringing in a lot of, a lot of contractors that spoke these languages, but they were contractors that we could trust. And that was the biggest source of contention. There was uh, we had a couple areas, especially in the very beginning where there was some contractors that were not so trustworthy, but then there were some contractors that you ended up developing a relationship with that you could, you could cash a check off for the words that they said. So for those that did not speak Farsi, Urdu, or Pashtun, you know, we had we had interpreters to do that. So yeah, I like that point that you bring up. You know, when I was I was a squad leader, you know, we had a series of interpreters with us down in Marja, and some were terrific. We we called this one guy Guile because he was you know like a Street Fighter character because he loved to punch people, oh, yeah. always having to like pull him off people. You know, and he was great, just like you said. You know, cash a check with his word. Extremely, extremely good, trustworthy interpreter. This other guy called him Gonzo. I don't remember why, but he, you know, he'd sit there and we'd be talking to some sheikhs, some tribal leaders, and they'd talk for two, three minutes, and they turn to me and be like, "He says he's doing fine." And be like, "You know, motherfucker, you're having a whole conversation yeah. over here. You're giving us the side eye, like, no, you know," and it. it it's tough when you depend on someone like that to provide you information one you know one way getting information from the locals but also to communicate with the locals and you don't know what's being brought across you don't know if they're being honest with you if they're being honest with them it's a it's a tough situation to be in to have an untrustworthy interpreter you know what's really funny is just to kind of piggyback uh off of what you just said when i was in iraq one of the guys in my squad is actually from uh, liberia and was a Muslim or is a Muslim. And he, you know, prayed, we would stop and pull security while he rolled his rug, his rug out. Even if we were out on patrol, he would roll his rug out and he would pray and we would pull 360 security around him until he was finished. A lot of people did not know, but he actually spoke fluent Arabic. And so when we had interpreters in Iraq that were, you know, speaking with local nationals or chiefs or something along those lines, I would just kind of, you know, look out the corner of my eye and just shoot him a, a quick look as the interpreter's trying to tell me what it is the local national said. And then he would just kind of put his head down as like a nod and be like, okay, well, I, I, especially the sketchy interpreters. We had somebody always around that just kind of checked to make sure that the words that were being translated were true and just. So I, I, I really, really enjoyed it. He, plus, he was a lot of fun. He told really good jokes. But, Nice. It's nice to have that kind of backup. Absolutely. Do you, do you have any kind of stories or any kind of anecdotes that you want to talk about from your time in Afghanistan at all? It's, it's one of those I never know, you know, it, it's hard to condense, you know, someone's deployment down into like a couple questions. So I always let people say, you know, this is what I want to talk about or this is what stands out in my mind. You know, good, bad, indifferent. Absolutely. I, uh, I could tell you that uh, we went on this and it was... 
it wasn't necessarily combat related. I think this is one of the most significant events that stands out in my mind during my deployment in Afghanistan. Aside from all the, you know, screaming and hollering and the guts and, the, you know, the screaming and the, the fire shots and or I'm shot, the shots fired and the explosions or whatnot. We actually teamed up with a battalion, SF battalion commander. And we went on this three-day trek up into the mountains in Pashtun Valley. And once we got up there, we let, met with the local ANA. And it's really funny because I left my gunner in the turret and we all kind of moseyed inside. And it was a bunch of guys from Norsoft, Liftsoft, Jersoft, us. I think we had just thrown the French out of Afghanistan. So <laughs> they were just useless. But anyway, I should maybe I shouldn't have said that. But anyway, you know, so we're inside and we call ourselves eating a meal with the local ANA people, local ANA soldiers. So we're all sitting around and I, we carry what we call emergency Pepsis in our in our cargo pockets. So we're sitting down breaking bread. And meanwhile, we've got security outside on the armors and stuff. And the guy that's in the turret, I'm in radio contact with them. And I'm like, you know, get me a checkup every 10 minutes. Let me know it's clear. And uh, he says, okay, well, give me a you know radio check every five to let me know you're still alive. So we're like, okay. So, you know, I'm sitting next to my buddy and I reach over and we're sitting on the floor and, you know, you eat everything with your hands. And I reach over and I grab this white slimy stuff. I don't know what it, I, I don't, I didn't know what it was, but I put it in my mouth and I'm sitting there chewing and, and it finally, it just kind of hit me. It, it hit my tongue and shot to the back of my throat, like, like an electric bolt. And I just looked at my buddy Doug and I'm like, I got a mouthful of, of food. Like, and then finally here comes the, here comes the, the heaves. And I'm just looking at him and my eyes get really wide. And Doug just is like, don't you dare. Don't you dare. And I just looked across the table. Now I've got the Colonel, he's sitting like two two spots down from me. And their Colonel and equivalent is directly across from us. And everyone's watching me. And I threw up in my mouth and caught it. And I'm sitting there and now I'm making myself sick by holding a, a mouthful of vomit. And Doug's in my ear, don't you dare. He shoves this Pepsi in my hand. So I crack the Pepsi and now I'm drinking, I'm guzzling like a beer. This entire can of Pepsi and washing it down with vomit into my throat, into my stomach. And then I reach over and grab mine and I drink that right behind it. Now I'm choke, trying to choke it and hold this stuff down. And I'm sitting there and my stomach is doing all sorts of cartwheels and flip-flops. And I'm thinking if I throw up this time, it's going to be projectile, you know, and I'm just, I'm losing it. I'm completely losing it. So Doug's looking at me. He's like, you're going to screw this up for everybody. And I was just like, so I, I suffered through the next 30 minutes. And I didn't eat another thing when we stood up because I'm six foot five. When I'm when I'm in combat gear and in and, and, and a vest and stuff like that, I look like I'm seven feet tall. Plus I'm black. So so I'm like the biggest, blackest dude out there. And so when we're walking, the colonel, the the equivalent, the leadership of the equivalent is staring at me as we're walking across the parking lot. I'm trying to run without running. I'm speed walking to the Hummer so I could get behind the Hummer and puke my brains out. And it was just it was just nuts when i got behind the hummer i just let loose and i was i let loose so bad that the gunner thought that we had been poisoned so now he's spinning the 50 cal around to the leadership of the a and a and i'm trying to scream to him no 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 wait a minute wait a minute and everybody's like you know bouncing around like what's going on it, it was just it was the funniest thing in the entire world it wasn't funny at the time we could have really caused an incident but to get back to your to get back to your question, the reason why we were there is because the story is absolutely true. There was a guy named Mahmoud, I believe his name was, and he was killed on I think it was September 10th. He was trying to warn the CIA about an impending attack in the United States. Yeah, Ahmed Shah Massoud, the Lion yeah. of Panjir. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, we went, that's where we went for the three day trek was we were going to his gravesite. They have a memorial. And so we went and laid a wreath, you know, at his memorial, but they had sent in a camera crew and said it was a news crew and there was a bomb in the camera and uh, they killed him. And that's why they were able to get the September 11th attacks off. 
well, I was part of the crew that actually went up there that night and uh, or that day or those days and uh, kind of paid homage to him. You know, he was trying to let us know that there was something about to happen. But, you know, it's uh, it, it, it's a tragedy. And but trust me, for those that were responsible, we did our best to make him pay. Yeah. Little known side story about the that guy. He he helped fight. Uh, there's so the Soviets pull out of Afghanistan in 89. And then there's a series of civil wars for about five years. And he was the the one who wanted to maintain the modern standards and have a more liberalized country versus the Taliban, you know, putting women back in burqas, saying that they can't attend schools, things like that. And yeah, he was he was a great hero. He was really the first casualty of the September 11th attacks. So that's cool you guys got to go out to his gravesite. It's a real important guy. Yeah, without a doubt. And I can tell you that the memorial is absolutely beautiful. I haven't, I haven't looked it up online to see if they posted any pictures of it or not. But I mean, just just, just to stand there, you know, and, and be around somebody that, you know, sacrificed his life to try to save 5,000 lives on September 11th. And having, you know, to, to the best of my knowledge, never stepped foot in the United States. I mean, that's somebody that's worthy of, at the very minimum, respect. And so that's why we went out there and, and showed our respects and, and, and did what we did. Yeah. So, and it's really funny because later on when I came home, I eventually got divorced. And, and so I wound up getting married again. And her husband, my, my wife's husband, was killed in the World Trade Center. Oh, damn. So I ended up, I ended up marrying a 9-11 widow. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about coming back from that deployment? You know, it's... Anything interesting yeah, sure. happen or, you know, perceptions of coming back from a combat deployment that's, you know, it goes a lot of different ways for everybody. Yeah, for me, you know, that was my first heavy, you know, dose of reality when it came to the military. All the way up until that point, I had just been putting iron increases in my uniform, doing push-ups and running the required, you know, amount of miles that I needed to run or pull-ups or whatever. But until that point in time, when I got with these dudes and they introduced me to what this, you know, we kept saying throughout the years, you've kept hearing throughout the years that even the smallest detail can get you or somebody else killed. It's not a joke. Like it was absolutely, you had to pay attention all the way down to, you know, if you had downtime, empty all your magazines and just sit down with a oil, oil rag in one hand, a clean rag in the other and just wipe down your brass and wipe the dust and dirt and grime off of each round in, in separate piles and then take one pile to be replaced if it has a dent or if the bullet is sunken into the case, you know, get new issue as opposed to, you know, it's just little things like that that can save your life. And, you know, not to mention the things that we endured. So when I came home, I was a little, I wouldn't say disillusioned, but I was a little disappointed with the way that the United States was kind of handling the action in Iraq. I came home in 2000, it was 2000, early 2004, and went back to being a police officer, went back on the street, but it was really, really difficult for me. It was really difficult for me. I, I worked for a police department not too far from Andrews Air Force Base, and maybe about two months later, I was standing in a woman's driveway taking a report for a stolen car and her husband had a jacked up four by four. It must've been a foot up off of the ground. And apparently someone broke the airspace over Washington, DC. And so Andrews air force base scrambled a couple of F 16s. Well, when they did the S turn coming off the end of the runway, it just like hearing that loud pitch scream and being so close, like in Afghanistan, that's when bad things happen. You want to you want to seek shelter immediately. They're dropping you know 500 pounders or 5,000 pounders or you know we always love to see the A10s rolling. But I I was be, the next thing I know I was being coached out from underneath the four by four by my supervisor. And you know the the woman that I was talking to actually dialed 911 for a second time, saying that the police officer that was standing in her driveway just lost his mind and ran underneath the truck and won't come out. And so. I was, I was having difficulty dealing with it. Little did I know that nine months later, because I, I decided to come out of the SF at that time, I just needed a break. And I knew that before I went to selection, before I went through the, through the Q course, if I was lucky enough to be selected, I just needed a little bit of a breather, a little bit of a break. So they allowed me to tra transfer into a straight leg infantry unit from the Maryland National Guard, 
nine months later, I was in combat again. It was, it was, it was a trying time. I get that, man. I, you know, coming home and because I I got out shortly after I got back from my second deployment, and you know, it's it's one thing to just kind of get tossed off into the civilian world. Did you feel like going back to you know your police department? You know, you still have. You've got a lot of daily structure, you know, not not the same culture by any means, but a similar kind of culture. Do you feel like that right. that kind of helped kind of ease you back into life, or was it still too different? It was it was it was a welcome it was a welcome change just from having to get up at oh dark thirty, you know, to having to be meticulous about everything that you did, you know, asking those in charge, you know, where do I need to be, what do I need to do. Sometimes you just have to kind of automatically know what's expected of you but within the police world it's like okay my shift starts at seven so i'm there at 6 30. you know i get off at three but i don't leave until 3 15. you know it's, it's sort of like regimented like you said but not not so much you know so not so regimented what what kind of bothered me a little bit was the fact that the police department itself was not necessarily veteran friendly you would think that you know when you have employees that are willing to put the uniform on and go off and fight a war you would think that you would have a police department that would be a little bit humbled or grateful you know not so much with these guys you know they were you need to come back immediately well i've got va appointments to make sure that i'm not carrying some sort of you know plague or something like that can i can i come in next week or something no you'll come back now and i'm like well wait a second like time out you know like I need to go and get a blood test to make sure that I'm good to go before you know, I need to be out processed. I need not out processed in the police department's like we need you on the street. Like, dude, I'm probably the last guy you want to put on the street right now. But they didn't have they didn't quite have that concept. I know you gotta understand that a lot of police officers, they have that paramilitary mindset, but they never they never serve for the ones that did not serve. And so, you know, it, it, it does a lot of ego involved in policing and so you just kind of have to figure out how that plays off 99 percent of the guys are great you know all my co-workers were just like welcome home they threw me a party you know but the command the command was more thinking along a policy and administrative mindset and that doesn't necessarily jive with what it is that you're feeling as a veteran returning home yeah so. that, that makes sense how about going back to you know just a regular grunt unit I was talking to a guy earlier this week for the show. He's Motor T, but ended up getting put into like a, a special stand-up unit in Iraq and just went out on foot patrols the whole time. So he comes back to this wow. Motor T unit, you know, he's got combat action ribbon, he's a Marine, and he's just like, oh man, you know, working on trucks sucks. I, I hate this now. Was You know, going from a team to being a grunt, I'm sure there's, you know, people probably looked at you a little differently. Did you look at them differently? You know, how did, how did that feel? Well, you want to talk about the epitome of ego. The one thing that you, the one thing that's really, really difficult to do is to show up, to show up in a straight leg, you know, a straight leg infantry unit, you know, with a pair of jump wings and a combat SF, you know, SF combat patching right on. You know, it's, it was, it was very, very difficult. It was very difficult. You know, my squad, the guys that were with me, they were with me and they're still with me now. The leadership wasn't very friendly but they did believe in the mission they believed in our soldiers so i guess they believed in me and us and so you know we got great training and you know it, it was like i said it's sort of like that military mindset where you have to learn how to you know everybody in the military comes from all corners of the globe all corners of the country and so you're going to bump into people that you do like you're going to bump into people that you don't like you're going to bump into people that you get along with and then some not so much it's up to you to figure out how to manage and massage massage each one of those egos and each one of those characters and personalities so that you can accomplish the mission and and feel comfortable you know with the person that's standing to the left or to the right of you but with me you know there was a lot of there was a lot of shots being taken because i you know i didn't have my green beret but I had all the, the, the experience of being on a team and doing this and doing that. So there was a lot of a lot of pokes and a lot of jabs that were thrown. But at the end of the day, the soldiers knew that they could count on me. And at the end of the day, I, I wound up realizing I could count on them too. Nice. So. Yeah, it's 
certainly everyone talks a lot of trash in the military, so that's that's an easy. That's one what we do. Me. Yeah. So you get back home for nine months, and then you're off to Iraq this time. You know, tell us a little bit about that. You know, where were you guys? You know, what was your mission? We were. We they snatched a company out of the 115th Infantry located in uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland. And they snatched the infantry company and dropped us with the 48th Brigade Combat Team out of Georgia. And so, you know, with the plussed up unit, the 48th BCT landed into, was at uh, Camp Liberty in Iraq. We, as our company, we were kind of detached away from them again and, and dropped into Taji. And so we ran combat operations out of Taji and the 48th BCT Oh, and I, I think it was the 111th Mountain Infantry from New England. They were they were sent with us to Taji. I made a lot of really good friends in that unit too. But we got it on up there. I mean, from the moment that we got there, we were trying to figure out they've got a swimming pool and a Burger King, and they've got two defects. The food the food was world class. Everything was fantastic on the base. And after a while, I'm kind of looking around and I'm like, why is everything so perfect here? You know, and then finally I winded up, I winded up meeting up with one of the, the helicopter pilots. He was an Apache pilot. And I was like, you know, so what's, what's everything like outside the wire? He said, it's hell on earth, dude. He said, it's absolutely crazy. He says, you know, what do you do? I said, 11 Bravo. He was like, are you serious? I didn't think we had 11 Bravo on this base. And he's just like in between forkfuls of macaroni and cheese. And he was like, dude, you got, you just get here? I said, yeah. He said, oh, you got your work cut out for you. But uh, it was crazy. Outside the wire was just a whole different ball game. That's why everything inside the wire was so nice. You know, you go outside the wire, it was nuts. But the Taji, Taji was an animal, man. And that's where I wound up getting my Purple Heart. So. And I don't have to talk about that at all if you don't want to, you know, obviously. So I'm guessing this is 04, 05, somewhere in there. This is 0405. Yeah. So, and for the listeners, you guys know, war started spring of 03, kind of on a shaky edge, and then in 04 through 06, just really accelerated. So coming in 0405 is also a weird time where there's a lot of political pressure. You had uh, the first push through Fallujah, which got called off because Bush didn't want too many casualties in an election year. So... My understanding is late 2004, a lot of stuff was just kind of left to fester because the American government, you know, had their own incentives to not have too many casualties. So then late, you know, very end of 04 after the election and into 05 was some of the fiercest fighting of the war. IEDs were really, really taking off at that point. For your guys in and around Taji, was it just a lot of presence patrols? Were you guys doing raids? You know, what was your kind of day-to-day tempo looking like well once we started going outside the wire we winded up fi- we wound up finding this little town called Saba Abor Saba Abor we winded up taking over to city center which was actually perfect it was an old government building and there was maybe about you know fields and almost a 300 well I'd probably say in 180 degrees it was fields of fire that were just completely wide open you know we could see almost out five, 600 yards, just of open field. But on, on the back side of the building, it was right where the edge of the city began. And so we wanted up occupying that, we called it the Alamo. And we fortified that place. And, and so Sabah Abor was more or less kind of wedged in between Fallujah and Ramadi and was it al-Baghdadi. And then it, it, like, as you went into the city of Baghdad proper. So we were like, sort of like that, checkpoint that that halfway waypoint where we would intercept fighters that were going from one location to the other maybe carrying ieds or carrying debt cord or something along those lines and so you know we went out there and we would live four or five days at a time on you know on the base on the alamo and sabah board before we went back, back to taji and we would just rotate back and forth along those lines trying to intercept fighters we had a was a four-man hunter or four-vehicle hunter-killer teams where we would operate 24 hours in pitch blackness, trying to run down vehicles. We would get into firefights, running firefights, the whole nine yards. It was it was it was pretty pretty intense. I'm guessing you guys had up-armored Humvees at this time. Is that that right? Okay, good. Yes, yes. Talking to the you know initial invasion guys, guys who were there through 
I'd say like the first half of 04, you know, riding around places like Ramadi or Tikrit in the back of soft skin Humvees with sandbags piled on the bottom. You know, what I try and, for the listeners, try and show that there are just kind of phases to the war. You know, there's the first where they, the invasion obviously, and then the government didn't really know what to do and they had the Rumsfeld light footprint and then, you know, leading up into escalating violence into the surge and kind of the the back end of the war when I was there. You can see that equipment eventually because of the RFI, which is a rapid field initiative that they wanted up putting into place, uh, our uniforms change. So we were one of the first units to land in Iraq with the new Digipat, you know, the gray and white and dark gray, I suppose it was, uniforms. But but all of our body armor was still, you know, the, the brown gamma. It was just kind of weird, you know, and you know, I was kind of mad because it seems like I, I was the only guy in the entire country that got issued a green Humvee, you know, and I was just like, dude, really? Like everyone else's Humvee is brown and tan. I said, and I got a green one, but, but we had fun with that as well. You know, we just kind of, you got to, you got to laugh to keep from crying, but yeah, it was, we started to, you could see that the equipment started to, started to get much, much better leaps and bounds almost every month that went by. We had embitters that were issued to us. We had, you know, leftover M14 rifles that were issued to us. We started getting the, the, the MRAPs, you know, the very first time we had gotten those. There was another vehicle that we had gotten issued that was kind of funky looking. It wasn't an MRAP, but it looked like a cross between an MRAP and a, uh, it wasn't an LMTV. I forget what the name of it was. But like a yeah, buffalo we, with the, the crane arms on the side for route clearance? Nah, this was a combat V. It almost looked like a it was a like a combat V hull shaped uh, vehicle. It was a wheeled vehicle. It wasn't the oh man, they have them up in Alaska now. I can't remember. The army has them in Alaska, and it, it's sort of like the precursor for the for that particular vehicle. Almost looks like a like an enemy, you know, BRDM almost, you know. But anyway, we instituted those. We started getting a lot of vehicles in that were just not the standard Humvee or Deuce and a half anymore. So, and they were armored, so. Yeah, and another note for the listeners, that V-shaped hull is to help deflect the blast from any IEDs that are in the road versus a flat-bottomed Humvee that would you know, catch the full brunt of the explosion. That V helps direct it away from the center of mass of the, of the vehicle. With the expectation being that the most that you'll lose is probably a tire or the steering linkage or the drivetrain or something. But as long as your 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 soldiers inside are okay. Yeah. Or Marines. Yeah, yeah. Obviously the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are very different. Another theme I try and hammer home in the show is that they, they are different. Because I think if you talk to Joe Blow American off the street, they might not be able to tell you much difference between the two wars. Do you mean just, you know, beyond the terrain, any any just kinda anecdotes or observations that really get to the difference between these two conflicts? I would probably say that, um, you know, whereas in Iraq, when, when we got to Iraq, pretty much anywhere in Iraq that you wanted to go, you could probably go there in a wheeled vehicle. You know, Iraq was much easier to navigate. Afghanistan, totally different story. If we wanted to go to Gardez, we flew there. If we wanted to go to coast, we flew there. If we wanted to, you know, go to uh, Salabad or Jalalabad or any of the other places, you always had to fly. I mean, the the, the terrain was treacherous. The, the mountain passes were really, really bad. It was it was definitely a a rotary rotary aircraft's nightmare in Afghanistan. But Iraq was much much easier to navigate as far as wheel vehicle. Now, of course, we had this problem called IEDs and EFPs, but you know, we just kind of made the best of it. So that was uh, transportation wise. As far as uh, weapons are concerned, is one thing that I realized is that in Afghanistan, during certain times of the day, it was not beneficial to use specific weapons. For example, the, the rounds of the Mark 19 flew differently through very, very hot weather, as opposed to weather that was not so hot. You know, humidity was not a non-factor, but just the heat itself caused, and I forget exactly what the scientific term or what the term that was explained to me, as far as, you know, the effects of the forces operating on the round as it's flying through the air. But, you know, it was just much, much more difficult to get the rounds to actually land where you wanted them to, especially at distance. 
Whereas in Afghanistan, or I'm sorry, in Iraq, you know, pretty much you could use whatever you could get your hands on. You know, it, it, it everything either worked or it didn't work. You know, the food in Iraq was absolutely terrible. Whereas the food in Afghanistan, I got so sick of eating lobster and steak. Oh, wow. I, I just, I came home, I didn't eat lobster and steak for six months. But they made sure in Afghanistan that they, I mean, what was it, uh, Kellogg Brown and Root, I think we're in charge of the of the provisions. And I mean, in the SF compound, we had our own, we had our own, cook, you know, cooks and whatnot. But every now and then we could go out and eat, you know, either at the Italian compound where they would fix five course meals or, you know, at the, the main tent with the 82nd Airborne, you know, we could eat there or we could come back and eat our own. So we had choices, but in Iraq, terrible, absolutely, especially at the, especially at the U.S. Embassy. You would think with, you know, foreign dignitaries and diplomats and acronym agencies that are there at, you know, in the green zone, that the food would be superb. Yeah, right. I'd rather eat an MRE, huh. you know, so, but yeah, there was, there was differences in the war itself, whereas the Iraqis were more or less. They, they knew why you were there. The locals did. I wouldn't say that they, I wouldn't come right out and say that they supported us, but we didn't get the, the, the glares from passersby. We didn't get the, 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 the sneers, you know, or, or anything from the local nationals. We, we just wanted to get rid of Saddam Hussein and we wanted to replace the government and they were just like, great, you know, help us. Whereas in Afghanistan, you have so many different tribes and so many different languages and spread out so far and they're they're just you're an invader you're no different than the soviets you know and you're no different than the ones that came before them and you know we have to fight to hold our land they think that you want that pile of rocks that they live next to when in actuality i want to make sure that nobody takes your rocks that you know that that's that's why i'm here so you know the, the wars were drastically different but a soldier that and, and a marine and the airman you know and a sailor that fought in both of them very much american so sure. very much american to your point about you know, the way people treated you in afghanistan differently i didn't happen to me it happened to another squad leader in my platoon you know they're they're out kind of in the farmland to like in a, in a place the British never went home and, you know, no Americans had been there yet. This is in 2010. And this old woman came up to him and spit on him and started yelling at him. And he brings the interpreter over and she's just like, I thought you Russians left a long time ago. We hate the Russians, you know. <laughs> she's like, if you come here, you're going to die. And it's just like, you know, there's... Talking about there's no, you know, logistical infrastructure. You can't drive places in Afghanistan. There's no There's no media there's limited cell phone coverage there's limited radio access and really no internet to speak of so it right. makes perfect sense that people would you know from 2010 to 1989 it's at over 20 years and this woman assumed it just the same people had been there the whole time no idea yeah i think there's a little bit of a difference between the soviets and an american soldier but you know if you've been living the way that you've been living in isolation for the most part for the you know last what 30 years you know yeah probably you're going to think that we're one and the same um you know everyone has their own personal opinions on why we were there we have our own personal opinions on you know whether we should have went or not and i, I try not to let any cre i try not to lend any validity or credence you know to to people's opinions you know, my job as a soldier was to follow orders. You know, you're you're just like your orders. You know, your job is to follow orders as a Marine. And so, you know, that's never going to change. As long as I'm wearing a uniform, I will do as I'm told. And, you know, this, I don't know, that's, that's not good. I would not, I would not want to be mistaken for a rush. I, I definitely would not. That would not be a highlight of my career. I just got two questions left. One, you know, have your thoughts about the wars changed over time, you know, since you've gotten home and been out for a while? Uh, and then second, just the, you know, any people or projects that you want to give a shout out to? Has my thoughts about the war changed at all? I think that, you know, sometimes, you know, my father used to tell me, my father was a very big influence in my life. My father used to tell me that a good man knows his limitations. And so, you know, you can't be everything to everybody. 
I think in Afghanistan, we went in with the best of intentions. And now that I've been home for the last 15, no, 13 years, and out of uniform for the last 13 years, I think I'm qualified to say something about it now. Although I'm still kind of leery when I do, just out of the respect that I have for the, you know, for our military personnel. But I think that there comes a point in time where we have to either, you know, finish our business or get off the pot. You know, and and if we are if we are still in Afghanistan, we should not be. And if we are still in Iraq, we should not be. I think that we should, you know, I think the time has come for us to cut our losses. We've shed enough blood, we've shed enough sweat, and we've, you know, given more than our pound of flesh. We've avenged the people that died on 9-11. You know, we have, I mean, if you want to compare body counts, I'm quite sure we went. So, you know, as far as Afghanistan is concerned, but, but if they don't want a government, then don't let them have a government. If they, they, they do want a government, then they'll have to figure it out, you know, after, after 20 years. As far as Iraq is concerned, you know, that's a tough one. That's a little bit of a tough, we have, you know, soldiers and Marines have kind of formed a, a little bit of a bond with the people there. We've trained up their commandos. We've helped institute and back up their government. So we're a little bit dug in a little bit deeper there. But I think that we should over time institute a phase out plan and slowly start pulling our forces out of that area. Now, of course, you know, I still have no idea why we're operating up in, on a Syrian border. You know, we do have forces, you know, as far as I know, you know, and I'm, I'm guesstimating here, but, you know, we still have forces in the area that are, as far as I know, advisors, I'm trying to clean that up real quick. But anyway, you know, I think that, you know, between the Jordanians and, and, and the Iraqis and the, the, the northern, you know, the northern, oh man, I forgot their name. Like the Kurds? The Kurds are right on the Turkish border. I think between the three of them, they can handle whatever it is that the Syrians throw at them. And, and just let Russia know in no uncertain terms that if you come across this line, we're going to smack you in your mouth and you're not going to like it. And But we need, to, we need to start bringing our guys and girls home, you know. And, you know, we've been fighting for a long time. Man. And while it is good, you know, nobody knows a good, a good fight better than an American. That's all we've been doing since our inception. You know, we know how to kick ass and chew bubble gum. But I think it's about time now to let the other, the let the, everyone else wants to talk about peace and, and all this prosperity and all this other stuff. Hey, you know, it's time for you to get in here and get, get your feet wet. We've been doing it for 20 years now. So let the Brits, you know, let the French, you know, let the Lithu, Lithuanians and the Estonians, let the, let the United Nations get in there and start doing something. What, what are we sending them money for anyway? You know, if we have to fight every war, but yet and still we're what sixty percent of their budget, like so. But that's just my just just my opinion, you know. And I'm just one person. But the one thing I learned in the SF community is sometimes one person is more than enough to get the job done. So I keep voicing my opinion, you know, occasionally, whenever someone asks. But you know, I did my part, and you did your part, and your buddies did their part, and everyone does their part. Whether you're a cook or a motor T wrench, you know, turner, uh, without you, there's no me, you know, and that's, that's my always been my attitude and it will always be my attitude. So. Yeah, that's, I think that's pretty nuanced, pretty rational set of opinions you got there. I, I agree wholeheartedly with all of them too, so maybe I'm a little biased. Yeah. And, and the last part of the show, always have the guests you know give a shout out or promote some kind of veterans organization or charity or project that they support do you have anything like that that you want to talk about you know i support horses for heroes you know they're an organization that takes uh, combat veterans puts, you know puts them in touch with horses and you know they go out for rides and stuff they have a nice little camp set up and so you should check them out you can google them and get their information i'm a member of phi beta sigma uh, fraternity they've been very very welcoming to not just me but every veteran of our organization they put scholarships out and so on and so forth so you know i want to put, give a big shout out to phi beta sigma there is a and you know what i just learned about it maybe about three months ago but it's called it's a it's a cigar and bourbon company that's owned by a hoot who was a Delta Force operator during Black Hawk Down. He was played by Eric Bana. And you know, he's the guy that says, this is my, well, he owns a cigar and bourbon company. 
And so I just ordered a box of cigars from him. His last name is Houghton, H-O-O-T-E-N. Uh, you can Google them and find out about them and you know, just support where, where you can and when you can. Most importantly, I think what I want to do is I want to give a shout out to all the veterans out there that continue to lay it on the line. Um, all the military personnel and, and guys like yourself that are just hell bent on not letting what we did be forgotten. You know, it, it says a lot to you, it says a lot to your audience, and it means a lot to me and the guys and girls that I know that you're still keeping keeping the fight alive, man. Just because we're not pulling triggers anymore doesn't mean that every time we speak a word, we're not helping the effort. And that means a lot to me. Red, white, and blue is everything to me. So, thanks, man. I, I appreciate that. That's all I've got, unless there's any other you know, stories or anything else that you want to say here. I just want to say thanks for taking time out and having me on. And God bless you, man. And uh, God bless the United States of America. Okay, that's it for today's episode. An enormous thank you to Robert for talking to me back in March of 2021. My apologies for taking so long to get the episode out. Make sure you check out the show notes for links to Horses for Heroes and Hoot and Young. Uh, there's also a link from my book, Chasing Alexander, uh, if you're interested in buying a copy of that. All right, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.